Welcome to America's Top Revitons. May this class be for Rafua Shalema, for Rivka Bachanina, Zipporah Bat Esther, Yoav Ben Sipora, and Arsene Ben Miriam. Please click on the subscribe button to subscribe to us on the America's Top Revitons YouTube page or click follow to follow us on your podcasting app so that you are the first to know when an inspiring new episode is posted. I am very happy to have on today's show Devorah, Leah, and Druzier. Devorah Leah is an addictions coach who helps people overcome their battle with different types of addictions. This is really, really such important and life-changing work. Thank you so much for being here. Please tell us more about yourself and what you do. Well, firstly, I just want to say that I'm honored and humbled to be here and specifically talking about this subject that I, I, I believe and know to be so important. So how I got into all of this was... Um, a couple years ago, well, firstly, I'm Devorle Andrusier. Um, my husband is Yankee Andrusier, mother of seven, granddaughter, grandmother of four beautiful grandchildren. So thank God. Um, I live in Bell Harbor, Florida, and um, thank God life is good with all the challenges. Um, so how I got into this to begin with was a couple years back, it was, it became very prevalent in the Jewish community and in the Orthodox Jewish community, a lot of kids, young adults were dying of overdoses, some purposely and some accidentally, but all deeply suffering and in a lot of pain. And what I was seeing is that everybody was talking about this, right? Shabbos table, this is the food for thought. Let's talk about this. How could this be happening? What's going on? And after a couple weeks of sitting at Chava's tables and having conversations like these, I became very frustrated with myself because sitting at a Chava's table and talking about other people's misfortune is not going to change anything. So I reached out to a friend of mine who I her son um, struggled for a really long time with addiction. I know that she um, had to do everything in her power to help him. And she ended up taking a course, a coaching course for her own self and for her family and ended up helping a tremendous amount of people. So I signed up, I took that course and the rest is kind of history and really history in the making because the more people who talk about these subjects, the easier and better off we will all be because I, I don't believe that there's anybody on planet earth that doesn't struggle on some level. Everybody is dealt different struggles. Hashem creates us each differently. We're each packaged differently. We each have our own set of struggles and our own ways of dealing with struggles. So to be able to talk about things that we generally don't talk about subjects that are taboo across the board, addiction, mental health, all of those subjects um, are very important, and I really appreciate you opening this forum. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm really, really genuinely happy to have you here because you're right. This is a subject that needs to be talked about, and it's not talked about a lot. And today, I'm really hoping with your help that we're going to really reach people and help them either to help themselves if they're the ones that are struggling or to help their loved ones if they have loved ones who are struggling. So um, addiction in the from community, in the religious orthodox community, it's today more than ever, people are, addic are addicted to all types of things. And it's no longer just drugs and alcohol. 
People are addicted to pornography, to sex, to technology, even to food. It's anything to make them feel good right away. And we live in a generation that craves instant gratification and escape. Unfortunately, the plague of addiction has penetrated the Jewish community, and there are many adults and teens that are battling their demons and suffering, suffering tremendously from stigma and shame. And today we're going to provide a source of strength and hope for Jews who are fighting addiction and hopefully prevent others from going down that path. So let's begin. Can you please talk to us about exactly what addiction is and how it starts? You know, for example, how does somebody go from enjoying a few drinks with friends to drinking bottles of alcohol all day long or playing video games all day long and they're not going to work anymore or just, you know, surfing the net for pornography? You know, how does it go from just something that they do once in a while to a full on addiction? So firstly, every person has a different story. So I can speak in a broader spectrum, but obviously each person has their own, their own way of dealing with things, their own, their own situations and their own struggles of how they went from one stage to another. Yes. So firstly, I just wanted to describe what addiction is. Addiction is categorized by a persistent and intense compulsion to engage in certain behaviors despite substantial harm or other negative consequences. So we're very aware that what we're doing is not good for us and we continue to do this behavior. So for me, um, addiction is not the problem. For addicts, addiction is the solution. Exactly. They are dealing with tremendous amounts of pain, abandonment, trauma, physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, all different types of things that people are dealing with. And some not even to that extreme, uh, you know, a feeling of aloneness, of not belonging, of I don't matter. So when you when you have those issues. The alcohol, the drug, the gambling and so on and so forth, is there to literally save you. It's the only thing that you you can grab onto, even if it's temporary and you come to know that it's temporary. In that moment, when you're feeling those feelings on the inside, there's that, that's your savior. That's like your Mashiach. The drug is your Mashiach. What we really need to do, because so often people who are addicts, Um, They go in to recovery, either they're forced by a family member or they're desperate themselves. They go in and they get help and they become sober. And they're referred to as a dry drunk because now what's happened is they still have all the challenge that they started with. They still have all that pain and difficulty and hurt. And now they've taken away the one thing that allowed them to feel better, even if it was momentary. So what we really need to do, obviously, if someone is in deep addiction, we need to address the addiction first. But if we only address the addiction, we're not helping these people. We may keep them alive, but they're surviving. And we don't want to go through life surviving. We want to go through life thriving. Yes. Given we're thriving, there are you know challenges along the way. But if for the most part, our lives are filled with purpose and meaning, that's a whole different ballgame. So... Yes, the addict needs help getting to the space where they're sober. But after that, the work just begins because 
cleansing out everything that we hold within us. And we know through therapy and all of that, that our body actually holds on to things. So there's a book called the, the body keeps score. Any physical, emotional, mental experience that happens to us, if we don't share it with someone, if we don't have a way to get it out, it stays and resides within our body. And it could show up as a pain in my hip, uh, uh, you know, my left shoulder is hurting or many other ways. But in order for us to be able to facilitate a happy life for someone who is an addict, it's not just about getting them sober. Now, um, you asked, how does it go from having a drink socially to becoming a full-fledged alcoholic, a full-fledged drug addict? So I can't give a, a flat-out answer, but what I prefaced with is if you're drinking socially and you're a pretty healthy human being, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, physically, you're a healthy human being and you go out and you have a party and you're having a good time and you have a drink socially, chances are you are not going to become an alcoholic. When you have a drink because you want to escape something that you're feeling, you need to run away. You can't deal with the emotions that you're experiencing. When you drink because of that, there's a much stronger likelihood that you can become an addict because you're drinking for a different reason. You're drinking to numb the pain. And why it becomes an addiction is because after you have one shot for a month, that one shot no longer serves the purpose. And you need two shots and three shots. And all of a sudden you're in full-fledged addiction. At this point, they're needing to hide themselves and try to cover their tracks because the most important thing for an addict is to be able to continue with their addiction. So they will lie, they will do everything in their power for them to be able to stay in that addiction because for those brief moments that they're under the influence of whatever it is that they're experiencing, they have some peace from what they were experiencing before. Also statistically, um, if you drink under the age of 18, you are four times more likely to become an addict, which wow. is huge. Wow. And um, I feel like all the yeshivas and all of the schools should know this. Um, I, I remember a story from back in the day um, in Russia when they were sitting down for, for a bring-in and they didn't have any alcohol. So they each filled up a shot glass of water and they had their for a bring-in and it was as if, the, if not, as if they had the alcohol, if not even exponentially higher than that, because they were working from their energy within, not some other substance that created this passion for what they were experiencing. So while it is challenging, it's, it's not impossible. And it does with guidance, with support and old, old school is the tough love way. It's not the way these days, obviously there are some people who still hold by that. It's all about complete unconditional love and acceptance of the human being, which a lot of people mistake for approval of behavior. So just because I love you, because you are you, are you. I care about you and you matter because you exist. I, I am going to 
help you or try to guide you in the right way so that you end up and you can com- continue to grow and be a healthy person. But that that shift is challenging. <clears throat> Wow. I, you know, I just love what you said. So I want to reiterate it because I just feel like it's so important. Complete unconditional love and acceptance of the human being. Like that's a way to really help the person who's struggling. Because as you said before, they feel ashamed of something. They feel they have low confidence. They have low self-esteem. They don't believe in themselves. And, you know, they're, they're drinking to numb that pain. The pain, maybe they experience some kind of trauma or whatever they're going through. And when they receive that love from the, another person, I'm not. I'm not saying that complete love and and um, unconditional acceptance is the only way to cure it, but it's a component. It's one essential component. I agree with you. That's going to help these people who are struggling because they don't need to be further shamed, further blamed or anything like that. And so I want to, I want to ask you a little bit of how, you know, in addition, in addition to this uh, complete unconditional love and acceptance, could you cure addiction with talk therapy or is there some kind of other more intensive therapy that's normally done with people who have addictions? So really, it depends on the level of addiction and what they are addicted to. Okay. So if it's if it's sex or gambling, um, talk therapy works. If it's alcohol, it depends on the extent of it. A lot of people, if they're already like very far gone, they need to detox. They need to do that with doctor supervision because the withdrawal is painful and difficult and dangerous. So talk therapy is amazing. Um, Working the program, the 12 step program is amazing. Um, A lot of people have um, some sort of issue with the 12 steps because it isn't a Jewish based program. But if you actually go through the program of the 12 steps, I believe at least six are referring to your higher power which in our case is Hashem. Um, And I've spoken to quite a few rabbis um, about this subject and all of them agree that the 12 steps is 100% permitted and allowed and necessary. Um, It also helps to have a support system. You know, people in your corner who, who see you. Right. To be seen by someone, to, to truly be seen by someone and to truly see someone is such a gift, such a gift. And to be able to have one or two people like that when you're in this struggle um, will make all the difference. And then you have the larger support groups where they're not as intimate. You're not divulging your deepest secrets maybe, but you're able to share. You know, I was talking to my daughter one day and she was going through something and I said to her, talk to me about it. Mm -hmm. She's like, what is talking gonna help? So I said, well, let's try it. And I said to her, when we finished the conversation, I said, nothing changed. The circumstance is still the same as it was. Do you feel lighter? And she said, yes. And I said, it's just because there's someone else, not carrying you, but walking by your side with this burden. That's so powerful because then you don't feel like you're by yourself. You're not struggling alone. Yes, you have to overcome the struggle you know, you, you're the one who has to overcome the tr- struggle, but you're not doing it by yourself. And, and that's so important because a lot of people who have addictions of all types, they feel by themselves. They feel alone. They feel lonely. Nobody gets me. Nobody cares about me. Nobody likes me. Nobody sees me. And I think that what you're saying about, you know, being truly seen by somebody is such a, it's such a, 
gift. It really, really is. And it can make such a difference in a person's life. I, I totally agree. Um, and I also want to ask you, you know, because you were mentioning um, sometimes you have to go into a, a facility or 12 steps if you're addicted to drugs or to alcohol. But so I was wondering, some people can go 20 years without the substance, you know, after they've gone through the programs. And then they're prone to one relapse. I mean, it could be 10, 15, 20 years, and then they have one drink, drink or one cigarette or one, you know, hit of a drug, and then they're back to square one with the addiction. How can some people, you know, be, be clean and sober for the rest of their lives and others? They have so much struggle within themselves to keep themselves sober. So firstly, not to correct you, but just to clarify, when someone does relapse, they're not back at square one. Okay. Okay. It feels for them in that moment, shameful and terrifying, but they're not back at square one because they've had all of those years of sobriety that they can tap into and they know that they can do it. So what we try to teach them is relapse is something to expect. Relapse does happen and not to shame yourself, but if you relapse to pick up the phone and to call that one person and say, Hey, I had a relapse because if you don't share that you had it, then you continue on a negative spiral. If you put it out there to someone, this is what I did. And I know like I'm in my, you know, a little bit of a danger zone. So I'm reaching out to let you know that this is what I did. So there should be absolutely no shame involved in that shame in general, in, in the Jewish world, um, very specifically, there is no place for shame. So the difference between shame and guilt, just to very briefly, guilt is I did something wrong. I feel badly and I'm going to try to correct it or not do that same thing again. Shame is very different. Shame is not I did something wrong. Shame is I am wrong. I didn't do something bad. I am bad. And if we allow ourselves to go to that space, it's a very quick descend to a very dark place because we feel badly about ourselves. We isolate from other people because we don't want people to, God forbid, see the real me. I don't want anyone, you know, I'm desperate for someone to see me, but I'm also terrified for someone to see me if I feel all of this shame. So shame, we have to try and get rid of it. And how we get rid of shame is by doing exactly what we're doing right now is talking about these things. You know, it's like, it's becoming so clear the need for a support system for somebody who is struggling, you know, not just with addictions, but, but with anything like the need for that support system is strong that that need, you know, so that's what we're going to talk about next, because reaching out to people really makes a difference. It really, really does, because some people really do feel all alone. I mean, many people who have addictions want to stop, but they don't know how and they're too embarrassed to reach out for help. There have been so many times that people have said, I wish I knew he was struggling or she was struggling so that I could have helped them before. But now it's too late. So in order to help our loved ones who have addictions before it's too late, before they overdose, we first need to know what the signs of addiction look like so we can spot them. And then we need some strategies that once we determine that our loved one does have an addiction of some sort, we know how to help them. So this is really a two-part question. First of all, can you please tell us what are some of the signs of addiction? And also, what can a mother, a friend, or teacher, or anyone else who cares do to help someone overcome their addiction? Right. I'm supposed to answer the questions in the in the order that they were asked, but mm-hmm. I'm going to answer your second question first. Okay. Um, what can we do once we recognize the signs? Yes. So when 
when someone comes home, right? And what we need to do is as, as challenging as this is, and in addition to working with the addicts, someone who's truly trying to help this family will work with the entire family. Because what happens is the addict goes into a treatment center and works hard and, and, and perseveres and accomplishes and comes home and is sober and has all this new knowledge, all this new awareness of addiction, all this new knowledge of who they are, because that's what, if they're doing it properly, they will find out who they really are. So they do all of this work and they come home and nothing at home has changed. And that's where a lot of the kids relapse because they come home to a toxic environment and everyone's saying, okay, you are the identified patient. You were clearly the issue. So we had to send you away. The ones who have the most chance of success are the ones whose families, while, while their loved one is away in a recovery or a treatment center, that the family is diligently doing work because this child who was the addict, there could be eight other children in the family and none of them have an addiction problem. How did this happen? Addicts, Rabbi Abraham Tursky actually said this, the addicts among us are the most, the most spiritual souls. And when they are not connected, when they don't see truth, when they don't have very clear understanding and connection with Hashem and with other people, it affects them on a different level. So you can have two people who have the exact same challenge and one of them has this more sensitive neshama and it's going to affect him or her differently. So when this person comes home and the family hasn't done the work, they, they don't know what to do with themselves. So they go and they start using. And what happens is they don't use, like I said, that first one shot. They use where they left off using. So now their body is clean and pure from all of the garbage that was in it. And they hit the body with a dose of some type of drug where they left off. And unfortunately, they're gone. Yes. So I would like, I also think anybody who even has any sort of suspicion that there's someone in their family or a close friend or loved one, they should carry around with them Narcan. Narcan is, um, it's a nasal spray. And if God forbid someone overdoses in those first two to three minutes, if you administer the Narcan, you can save their life. If you wait for 911 or Hatsala and they don't get to the hospital on time to get that, unfortunately, this, the situation is not good. So Narcan saves lives. I have one in my car. I have one in my house. I have a lot of guests. We have a lot of community members and hopefully I never need it, but it's an insurance policy. Wow. So the Narcan is it? It's a so I wrote down that it's a nasal spray. Like you just—it's a nasal, it spray. nasal spray. It's two sprays. It gives you the directions. You don't need to be any sort of licensed medical person to administer it, and it's just—it's a lifesaver. Wow, that's amazing! And it has to be done like right away, like you said, like in the yeah. first two to three minutes, like right away. Yes, yes, as okay. as 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 closely to it as possible. And so I get hope it? that I answered your second question. I can go back to 
um, what are signs of addiction? Um, yes, I just um, I just want to ask one more question about the yeah, Narcan. Sure. Um, where can people get it? Like, is it available at pharmacies at CVS? It's or? available at pharmacies, but I believe that there are organizations that give it out for free. Okay, and it's spelled N A R C A N C A N C A N. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. Yes, of course. Okay, so there are we have multiple parts to us: emotional, mental, physical, spiritual symptoms, how you can tell or how you can start to think about somebody maybe having an issue. So there's first is your behavioral signs. So behavioral signs are their thoughts and actions. Everything revolves around their addiction, right? So everything else is sidelined, work, family, school, depending on where they're holding in life, everything else becomes secondary and fueling their addiction is of prime importance. So you see if they start to slack off in school, if you have a good, you have a child who's usually a good student and all of a sudden their grades are slacking or they're skipping classes or they're, uh, you know, they were super social and all of a sudden you see them hanging out in their room alone a lot with, you know, sticking their headphones on, going under a hood. And with teenagers, it's very, very challenging. Because with teenagers, they do that on a natural day. Like you walk down the street and you look for a teenager, you scope out, you find a hoodie and headphones or ear pods and they're blocking out the world. Does not necessarily mean that they are in in starting addiction or an active addiction. So with teenagers, um, I just feel like the more we communicate with our kids, the better off we all will be. Yes. So we, we, my family, we tend to over communicate, but I would rather that being in this world and knowing, you know, what could God forbid happen. Um, just talk, you, you got, you gotta talk to your kids and you have to not be afraid to say things to them that you think they shouldn't know because they know. And yes. if you're, if we aren't the ones telling them the information that they need, it's at their fingertips. And I know parents block this and they lock that. Our kids are way more tech savvy than we are. And they know how to figure it all out. So from a very early stage, I know this, the program safety kids that, should, you know, in the past couple of years converted and found a way to be able to present in Jewish schools. Mm-hmm to talk about these things, like we just have to talk about everything. There should be no subject that is taboo for us to have with our children. When I speak to my kids, I say to them, you can ask me, there's no question that you can't ask. The only thing that you can't ask is anything on a personal level between daddy and I. So like if they had, you know, mikvah questions or whatever it is, but you know, each one age appropriate, obviously you're not telling a seven year old the same thing you're telling a 15 year old, But even a seven-year-old in the world that we live in today knows more than we knew when we were 20. It's true, unfortunately. Is like I would say you can't guarantee that you're that someone's not gonna grow up and be an addict. There's no guarantee. There's there's there are things that we can try to do that will minimize the risk, minimize the risk. So having open conversations, spending quality time with our children, 
Um, when, I mean, we're all guilty of this, but putting our phones away and sitting down at the table and having meaningful conversations with them. Like, how was school? Fine. You had a good day? No. Yes. No. <laughs> Ask them questions where they have to respond. And in, and in the beginning, especially if you ha aren't doing it, it, there's a lot of pushback, especially if your kids are older or teenagers that they don't want to talk to you, but they're desperate to talk to you. So right. they're going to do that push and pull. And it's our responsibility to make sure that we speak to them in a way where they want to hear us, where we're telling, you know, we're, we're being loving, we're being kind with boundaries. Right. Because we don't want to infringe too much on them because they really do need their boundaries. They really do need their space where they don't have to feel like they have to divulge everything to us. We just have to. I find that sometimes if you just talk about even yourself and your day and you just get a conversation started, even if it's about you and what you did, it flows. You know how conversations flow? You could start talking about the weather and all of a sudden you're talking about what's going on in science class. You know, conversations just have a way of doing that, going from one subject to another just naturally. Mm -hmm but they have to get started. So a lot of times I feel yes. like it's helpful just even just start talking about yourself and your own, your own day just to get a conversation started. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Okay. So now, so, so, so we talked about behavioral also, they, when you're an active addiction, you don't really care about your hygiene. You dress, your dress starts to look a little more schlumpy and some people do the exact opposite. And those are the ones that people call highly functioning addicts, where they're able to maintain a semblance of normalcy. So the world thinks that everything is fine and inside they're suffering. They're suffering. So it, it's, it is tricky to pick up signs, but I would say anything that deviates from normal behavior is worth having a conversation about. And if it's not addiction, there's something else that's troubling them. And if you address what's troubling them from deep, deep within the core of what's troubling them, that's one less thing that they have to hold inside of them. Right. And, and, you know, just shove it down, keep it in there. One less thing. And those are the things that do lead to addiction. When I do shove my feelings down, when I don't have someone to share with, when I don't feel love, when I don't feel worthy. So if we give our children that and not, you know, oh my God, you're so amazing. They are very quick to pick up on that. Yes. Children, yeah. children don't want blanket. You know, of course you're going to say that you're my mother. Right. But if we're specific and we only can be specific if we talk to our kids, because we more we talk to them, we more we know about them. So we can say something specific to them oh wow you remembered that like why it must matter mommy has seven kids but she remembered that I said that the other day wow I must really matter and when a child believes that they matter and feels that they're 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 the addiction is, is a lot less prevalent Right. And that makes sense. Right. Because again, they feel seen. They feel like they matter. Their, their self-esteem is bolstered. They feel like they really count. They have a purpose in this world. So that really, really is important to help instill that in your child. I love that. Um, 
So I also want to take a minute to address the stigma surrounding the addiction, specifically in the Jewish community and especially in the religious Jewish community. So there are longstanding myths associated with substance abuse in the Jewish community. They still exist. There is a mistaken thought that people who practice Judaism are somehow protected from addiction or only Jews who have become alienated from their faith develop substance abuse issues. The typical orthodox stance about addictions is to stay quiet on the issue. Don't tell anyone. Don't talk about it. But battling addiction in the Orthodox Jewish community means that we need to break through the silence like that we were saying before. This is because Jews who develop addictions, like we were saying, they often feel guilty and they feel shame because they feel that they have no one to turn to, largely due to judgments they fear that they'll be subjected to by their wider community. And this should not be the case. So I want to see if you could please share your thoughts about why addiction has become more prevalent in the religious Jewish community and also what the Jewish community as a whole can do to help those who are struggling. Okay, so I I used to have a really hard time with the from Jewish community. Okay. We don't talk about it. Yes. And the because in the previous generations, they didn't talk about it. <clears throat> For them, it served them well. They were fleeing. They were immigrants. They yeah. were in 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 absolute 